Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of the MindBeat Podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. Lane, let's let's talk about our favorite topic. What do you have for lunch today? I, I haven't eaten yet, and I, I am so sad. I All I had this morning was a cup of um, ginger tea that I make, ginger turmeric tea. I mm. literally like mash up ginger root and turmeric root and just boil it. And yeah. then I put a little bit of brown sugar in it, which I'm told has like a enhancement uh, property to it. Like sort of like if you add lemon to green tea and it like enhances the properties of the green tea, I've been told that brown sugar does the same for ginger and turmeric. So uh, yeah, I've been a little under the weather. I'm getting better as a uh, as the week goes on, but I just made myself a big cup of tea and it's still a little early. I haven't had lunch yet. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm planning to have for lunch yet. Do you, what have you had? I just, I just had a handful of Czech snack mix, a handful. Yeah, which is, which is <laughs> the, not, the, 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 not the breakfast of champions, yeah. but the, the lunch, lunch of the mediocre, I think. Right? So, yeah. so you gotta ho- get it hopefully, where you can. hopefully after our conversation today, we will, uh, we'll, we'll get a little bit more time to, to, to do that. So, uh, but now I, you got me thinking about lunch. I now, do, like, do, I do I enjoy like? a good Czech snack mix. You know what I also like? Yeah. If you have gar- like Gardetto's, you like Gardetto no, snack that? mix. It's a you find it in like uh, you know if you pull over on the side of the road, and you mm-hmm. get kind of a like a mm-hmm. like a mini mart or something yeah. like that. You have the little Gardetto snack mix. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a it's like a fancier Czechs, right? Okay, yeah. When, no, when you say snack mix, are you talking about just in the bag form? Or are you talking about when you make that cool trail mix where it's got like the peanut butter and the powdered sugar on it? You know what I mean? The I, checks, but you know I, what I'm talking about? I and enjoy the chocolate that, but I'm not, I'm not personally making any oh, snack mix right now. That's so now good. In my, in There's another life, name so. for it. Is it like puppy chow or something like that? I know what you're talking about. Oh, no, it's about. so I, good. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things I used to hope that somebody's mom would bring into school one day because I know I was never going to get it otherwise. <laughs> I was like, who makes this? Where can I find it? It's like I'm talking more like ones. the blue bag of Czech yep. snack mix. My son likes did. those. Yeah. But he likes to buy the whole bag just to pick out the one little thing in there he likes. It's crazy. Yeah, because it, it, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. We have a whole separate conversation about how you rank the ingredients yeah. of the snack mix. Is it, is it the... The yellow checks? Is it the brown yeah. checks? Is it the is it the little uh, bagel chip looking thing kind of that, that's in there? I think so. it is the bagel chip thing that he likes. Okay. I think that he picks through those, and then I think there's a few other things he can work with. But I'll often find a bag missing, like a third of whatever the checks mix. The, has. the, pre- <laughs> like, the pretzel is not great. I feel like I feel like the pretzel that's like the filler ingredient. Like the pretzel <laughs> is to snack mix as grapes are to fruit salad. Right? <laughs> what or, are or, they or, good? Or like, pretzels like are melon. good. <laughs> like if you go to a hotel and you get mm-hmm. like the fruit salad and they mm-hmm. just they're, they're it's like ninety percent honeydew. Like yeah, that's not yeah. that's not great, yeah. right? So <laughs> well, I'd rather have honeydew than cantaloupe, though. So <laughs> yeah, they're both they're both that they're 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 competing for last place in my in my book. So give me some grapes, give me some strawberries, like a uh, little kiwi Watermelon, fruit, maybe yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, even a banana, throw a banana in there. So, in the um, fruit salad, I don't know. I like my banana separate. <laughs> I 
Well, we've got two <laughs> great guests today, uh, Dr. Kat Scherer and Dr. Elizabeth yes, uh, Sylvester, so uh, who are, are going to uh, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, kind of you're, yes. you're most familiar, I think, with their with their work. And I yes. know you're very passionate about it. So do you want to talk am. a little bit well, about them? So part of my my roots is that I, I was a parenting teacher. I mean, I guess I still am, but I used to uh, work with pregnant parenting teen moms and I was a parenting teacher for them. And so I'm very interested in this topic. I love talking to our parents. Um, you know, in our districts. And uh, so this this is a special episode for parents today. I realize a lot of our audience is mental health, um, uh, school-based mental health professionals and educators, but a lot of those people are also parents. Uh, and then just for our parent audience, this is really a special treat for you. Um, I have a, a personal connection to Dr. Elizabeth Sylvester. Uh, she was my my peer leader in the nurture heart approach when I was becoming a, a trainer. I think uh, I think we met during my second round as an advanced trainer, and uh, was just really amazed by her um, her spirit, her knowledge, and. Um, I've just really enjoyed getting to know her over the years. And then I saw that she and Kat wrote this book together and it's been really fun getting to meet Kat and learning about um, their book. So I, we have a really special treat for the audience today, um, hearing about what they have to say in this book. It sounds really like cool. this would be a great episode if you are a school-based mental health practitioner to like forward out to parents in your community Perfect. and to share kind of with, with parents. Please share with your parents. This is going to be a message that all parents need to hear for sure. Great. Well, Lee, why don't you kick us off with our top three? Okay, so this time, top three ways to have an inclusive classroom. I love this topic. We're talking a lot more about racial trauma in a lot of our districts right now. And one ways we can, uh, or one of the ways we can, you know, mitigate that is to make more inclusive classrooms. So some of my tips for, and there's so many ways, but I would say my top three at the moment anyway could change tomorrow. But number one is creating that safe space. Well, how do we create that safe space for students? Well, we need to educate ourselves on who's in our classroom. We need to know the cultures, the languages, the uh, the religions, the gender identities of those that we are working with, um, and then learn the proper, proper pronunciation of their names. Um, mm. Those go a long way towards creating a safe space where there's trust safety and security, then we can have learning. Then the second thing I would say is, um, you know, once you have kids available for learning after creating that, that trust, safety and security, well, let's bring the value of that culture into curriculum. So if you can make more um, relevance out of the curriculum, you know, even if it was just, you know, you know, you have a kid's uh, a classroom full of soccer players and I started making more soccer references in my math class or whatever that's the subject, then those soccer players are going to sit up a little bit taller. They're going to want to pay a little bit more attention. They're going to go, oh, I have a story for that. Or that reminds me of this thing or I'm making much more connections because this is relevant to me. So that's a soccer reference. You can definitely do that with different cultures, religions, languages to make people feel like, oh, this is something I talk about around my dinner table. This is something I have, um, a knowledge of, uh, you know, based on the things that happen in my home. So I have, um, uh, you know, some, something I had to add to the conversation, something to contribute. And then I would say third, embrace families, embrace families, have more families volunteer, have more families, invite them in for programs, invite them in to share their cultures, religions, um, special holidays, special foods that they have. Um, we really want to uh, celebrate the diversity that is in our classrooms. So that's my top three. There are certainly many more, but I think uh, that's a solid starting place. Yeah. 
That's great. Uh, th- thanks for thanks for sharing. I think those are three great uh, great insights. Uh, let's move to our uh, in the news article uh, for the day. So the article uh, for today that I'm going to talk about is from Education Week just uh, um, earlier uh, this week. School foundations shift their focus to students' mental health as need grows. So a lot of communities have local education foundations. The article talks about how uh, you know, foundations typically have been used to do things like plug budget holes, pick up the cost of teacher professional development, raise money for technology upgrades, other kind of capital projects. And the point of the article is that these local education foundations and a lot of uh, places have actually been uh, shifting their focus to a different and emerging area of need, and that's funding critical mental health and well-being uh, efforts in really direct response to the growing rates of depression, anxiety, other mental health diagnoses among young children and, and teenagers. The article talks about a couple of different examples. It talks about the Cherry Creek Schools Foundation, uh, which is a Denver suburb, and uh, uh, then you know, and the, and the money raised in uh, Littleton, Colorado, as well through the Littleton Public Schools Foundation. Um, great article. We'll get this posted up on up online, um, and I think this is a really important component. Of school-based mental health funding, I, you know, the note I would make here, make here is I think that you know the um, funding that goes to a local education foundation I think is going to vary across kind of communities, and so I think from an equity and an access standpoint, while this can be part of the of the funding equation, by no means, in my opinion, is it the one that we should be relying on kind of as a as a society. I don't I don't think this uh, you know kind of eliminates the need for really, in my mind, urgent state and federal action to make sure that districts have sustainable funding for school-based mental health. Uh, We've got a lot of the COVID relief funding that's still out there right now, but we know there's an expiration date on those dollars for districts, and it's really, really important uh, for policymakers and legislators to be thinking about how we're going to backfill uh, some of that that funding. Um, I was at a conference earlier this week in uh, California, uh, and there were a lot of folks from the California Health Department. They're doing some really interesting things there. One of the things in California that I think is most interesting is they're coming up with a, um, they passed a law last summer to create a statewide fee schedule that requires private insurance companies and Medicaid to reimburse for the cost of school-linked mental health services. So that to me is the kind of like structural change that I think uh, uh, if we can see that across all states is going to be a really, really kind of uh, great transformation into how we sustainably fund school-based mental health over the the long term. So uh, uh, again, Education Week, school foundations shift their focus to students' mental health as need grows. I love it. I love it. I I just think that, you know, one of the things I always feel like, you know, in terms of policy change for school districts, I wish like the first two weeks of the school year were really just about building relationship, creating that safety, trust, security, because until we have all of our mental health in check, until we have addressed that Maslow's hierarchy (coughs) of needs, our physiological needs, our need for um, emotional safety, belonging and esteem, we're not going to get to education. So it's all for not we're hustling backwards. We're never going to get to Uh, these cool learning modalities or learn to use this cool technology until we've addressed the mental health issues. And one of the best ways to do that is to really promote relationship building. So I just think that we need to spend more time in the beginning of a school year focusing on creating, again, that safety, trust, security, that safe space. Um, And that's where kids are really going to start to flourish academically. And and until that changes, it's, you know, there's a lot of other things that we can throw at these issues. But um, I think that's going to be a real 
a real factor in, in mitigating and even preventing a lot of the things that we're seeing. In Couldn't schools. agree more. That's a yeah. great, great point. So, so Lane, would you like to introduce our guest for today? I would. I would. So I'm going to start. We have two wonderful guests today. They're co-authors um, of, of a wonderful book, which I'll introduce in a moment. First, I'll start with Dr. Kat Scherer. She's a psychologist, educator, and author working in Austin, Texas. She's the co-founder of Austin In Connection, co-host of Heart and Work Blogs on Mental Health and Parenting, and a faculty member at the Practice School of Yoga Therapy. And then Dr. Elizabeth Sylvester, who's a psychologist and Nurtured Heart Approach Advanced Trainer, treating children, teens, and families. She specializes in work with emotionally and behaviorally intense children. And additionally, she offers supervision and training to pediatric psychotherapists in Austin, Texas. Um, so thank you so much for being here with us today um, to discuss your book. Uh, you know, so we're, we're just really happy to have you here. I'm, I'm very, very tickled to see you guys. Thank you for having us today. Uh, thanks, Kat and Elizabeth. Incredibly excited to have you here. Most important question for today, do you have anything you'd like to add to the snack mix discussion from <laughs> earlier on? I know you were listening in. I could very see important. you were I like, very engaged I like the in that. little bagel chips, I have to say. Little bagel, bagel chips yeah. are good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is the, what is the one that looks like a little piece of toast, right? Like a little brown yeah, piece that, of toast. That's is like, that that's like, yeah, I think we're calling that a bagel yeah. chip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is well, that, like pumpernickel like, or something. It's like a little, it's like a little Melba toast. So there you a, go, a but Melba then, toast. But then the Chex Mix <laughs> I just had, it was a special version <laughs> that had bagel <laughs> chips in place of the Melba toast. So. I love it. The, yeah. That's what it is, Melba toast. All right, well, thank, thanks Melba to both of you for uh, <laughs> thanks to both of you for being here. We could talk about Melba toast like all, all day, yeah. right? But uh, your 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 work is incredible, incredibly impactful. I mean, a question I had right off the bat: Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between attachment regulation and, and discipline? How do they all kind of fit together? Yeah, sure. One thing I want to say is I was really excited while you were talking. They were talking about how important relationship building is. And that's really, at, you know, at the heart of what we're talking about today is how important it is to be conscious of the relationship between adults and children uh, as a foundation for children's um, growth and also their mental health. Um, thank you. By the way, I forgot to mention the, the book title, so let me do that too. So the, the name of your book is Relationship-Based Treatment of Children and Their Parents, An Integrative Guide to Neurobiology, Attachment, regulation and discipline. So um, having said that, I'm, I'm so curious about your relationship, how you two decided to co-create um, this book and what inspired it. We uh, were both participating in a, a group in Austin called Austin um, in Connection. And we started talking and found that the work that we did and the perspectives that we brought in areas where we'd studied deeply meshed very well. And Kat brought a deep knowledge of neurobiology um, and mindfulness work. And I had a lot of experience working um, with children using the nurtured heart approach and um, using techniques to teach parents and teachers, by the way, how to manage their, and build their relationship with their children in such a way that the children felt secure um, behaved better and felt more emotionally stable. And what kind of came out of it was the awareness that she knew the why of why all this stuff I was doing worked. Mm. And I knew the how, the boots on the ground um, implications of all the theory that she had studied deeply. And so when we put it together, it created like a whole, a whole packet of knowledge. 
And to kind of go back to, yeah, go ahead, Kat. I was going to say, and my area of study was like, I had been studying with uh, Dan Siegel and the Mindfulness Institute for, uh, for it's been over a decade now. And, and, and what we do there is we're thinking about how these, all these fields integrate, how neurobiology or the foundation of our development affects our attachment, our attachment then affects our neurological and physical development. And then also how this foundation, these early attachment relationships shape our emotional world, what emotions we're conscious of, how we deal with them, what we're comfortable with or not. And then all these factors are going to affect our, our behavior as well, which is often emotionally driven, but is also limited by our neurobiology and our maturity or our um, experiences in the past. And so, um, from my perspective, from my perspective, we were working with a, parents, you know, thinking about attachment a lot and the attachment relationship, but not as much in the how do you deal with when problems come up. And so that's where, you know, we weren't as as focused on. And I think some of the things Elizabeth has brought in that's been very valuable is how when we put all these pieces together, it helps us think about how we deal with behavior problems and how to deal with them in a way that's consistent with development, consistent with attachment, keeping the attachment strong, and making sure we're helping a child learn to regulate their emotions. So Kat Elizabeth, for the for the lay people listening today, how would you define attachment from kind of a developmental science standpoint? How how should we? I think we we probably all have our uh, own conceptions about what what that word means. But in in your world, what, what's the more precise definition we should be thinking about? That children are born with an innate drive to connect to a caregiver that is focused on them and attuned to them, and when. Often it's a parent, but it can be a grandparent. It can be some other important person who's present in the child's life. When that person connects with the child in a way that's loving and warm and notices what the child needs and meets those needs most of the time and avoids um, harshness, the child builds an internal sense of how relationships are supposed to work and builds an internal sense of who they are and see themselves as a good person and sees the world as a safe place. But we don't want to, so while this happens in the first years of life in the care of, of whoever the primary caregiver is, it doesn't mean that later in life people can't influence our attachment patterns. And that's why teachers are so critical. Teachers can be very soothing and healing to children who are still looking um, for the stability of a strong and stable relationship with an adult. Got it. And so the flip side of that, when students don't have kind of that that proper level of attachment early in life, what are what are some of the the consequences or challenges that result uh, from from that? So it can be minor. Pretty much all of us have some little minor attachment bumps and bruises because parents don't have to be perfect and can't be perfect and aren't perfect. So we've all got little knocks here and there, but depending on the severity of the disconnect, it can range from a little bit of a, I'm kind of skeptical of strangers to a full blown um, mental, um, mental disorder of some sort. There's a big range, but the categories of things that are affected by attachment and can't jump in because I'm going to list a few and then you'll think of the other 10. Um, one thing is your sense of yourself, your identity, who you think you are. If you think you're worthy of being here and being treated well. Another is trust in the world. 
Do you think that other people can be trusted? Is it worth the risk to form a connection? Your assumptions about what's going to come your way from other people. Got it. And then those assumptions that Elizabeth's talking about shape our behavior. So if we're used to a available caregiver's environment, we expect people to be there for us. And so when we see people, we engage with them. We make eye contact, we smile, you know, we're there. We know we expect that we'll be received and responded to. And if we're not, you know, it might be a little off-putting, but we we adjust and we adapt pretty quickly. That's kind of the secure attachment environment. When someone has an insecure attachment or or a, 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 like a disorganized attachment, then they enter an environment not really expecting it. Let's say your caregiver's really don't pay a lot of attention to you. They're very busy. They're very distracted. They've got their own issues. So they're not available. Then you kind of go into the world expecting to be very autonomous. You're not really expecting as much to get much from others. That's not been, you're you're not kind of wired to expect that. So you're going to be a little more self-regulating and internal and less likely to look to others for getting needs met. Got it. Got it. So that that probably goes back to the question I began with, this interrelationship between attachment regulation and and discipline. You've kind of talked a little bit about the linkage between attachment and and regulation. How How does discipline fit into this? Elaine said it already at the very beginning. She said um, that children cannot learn when they don't feel safe. And that one thing you I think we're speaking to teachers about is it wouldn't it be awesome if we had a few weeks to create relationship and help children know they're safe so then they can learn. That's essentially in a nutshell how discipline, learning and behavior fit in. If you're dysregulated, if you feel frightened in relationship, you're more likely to act out or withdraw. So behaviors can show up when children don't feel secure in relationship or when they don't have the ability to manage their own feelings, which we learn in relationship. Um, And when children act out, they're not in a state where they can learn, right? Or when children are withdrawn, their, their brains and nervous systems are not in a state where they can learn. We don't learn well when we're angry Mm -hmm. or when we're frightened. And actually, I'd add a piece to that is when we're attached to another person, if the child's attached to their teacher or their caregiver, they're more likely to want to engage. And when they're engaging, they're able to learn. They're more likely to be compliant as well. Got it. Got it. I don't know who said it, but somebody famously said learning only happens in calm states. Well, you know, if you don't have that safety, trust and security, then you're in one of your um, stress responses. So I I totally agree. So you may have started to already mention some of these. In their book, you discuss seven essential attachment needs. So could you go through what they are and what the implications of those are behaviorally, academically and socially when those needs go unmet? And I have them right here. You want me to read them out? Oh, yeah. Okay. so safety and security. Feeling, feeling safe in the relationship with your attachment figure. Soothing, knowing you can count on your attachment figure to help you calm when you don't feel right. Attunement, the adult being able to read the child and be able to tell if the child is upset or calm or sleepy or needs a hug or needs to play and run. Being able, the child feeling they can be read by the adult. Reliability and consistency, the adult being able to be counted on to be there. It's not I'm good sometimes, but half the time I'm not even around, right? Being there reliably 
and being consistent in your interactions so the child knows what to expect from this adult. Um, support and encouragement, which I think are self-explanatory. Stimulation, novelty, and fun. Kids are attracted to stimulation and novelty and fun so strongly, and it creates joy in relationship, which helps children learn about um, positive feelings too. And then boundaries and structure. Children need clarity. They need to know what's inbounds, what's out of bounds, um, and the security they can derive from knowing what's going to happen next mm -hmm. through structure. It's a great list. That's one of those lists that if you're a parent, kind of you're going through and listening to it, and kind of self-assessing <laughs> yourself, and you're like, okay, yeah, okay, right. So, uh, but that's that's uh, that's incredibly helpful. I hear a little bit of nurture heart approach in there too. I heard getting clarity about the rules and the boundaries. And so, you know what, I've, I've been remiss for those of our of our listening audience that are not familiar with the nurture heart approach. Elizabeth, do you mind just giving a, a short little sweet uh, explanation for, for it since we referenced it many times right. in your book? Yeah. Yeah. So the nurtured heart approach is an approach developed by Howard Glesser and it can be used as an intervention for um, children with behavioral or emotional problems, but it's also just good, solid interaction style for adults to use with children, period. That doesn't have to be a problem. And it's based on three foundational notions. The first one being we're not going to overreact to problems and we're not going to add negativity to situations. We're going to be chill around problems. The second one is um, high levels of positive. We're going to point out what children are doing wrong. We're going to celebrate their successes, even teeny tiny little improvements. And even when something's just not going wrong, we're going to celebrate it. And then finally, we're going to have high levels of clarity. We're going to be exceedingly clear with children about what's inbounds and what's out of bounds. And children will know they can bank on us to celebrate them when they're inbounds, and they can bank on us to not overlook it if they step out of bounds. And what is the consequence when, uh, according to the Nurture Heart approach, when we go out of bounds? So the consequence when you go out of bounds is nothing fun happens till you're back in bounds. Uh -huh. So basically the consequence is you get so much positive feedback when you're inbounds, and the positive feedback stops when you're out of bounds. And that starts up again the moment you're back in. So we're rewiring our brains or our kids' brains to realize that there's much more nurturing support connection when I'm inbounds versus right. a lot of our students currently think and our kids um, have learned through their life experiences that I'm much more celebrated and much more valued when things are going wrong, when I'm having problems, when I show off is when people show up and have all that relationship. Um, so I, I, I love the way you've woven uh, the Nurture Heart approach throughout this book, which is something that we uh, coach on at a high level with both educators and parents in our school district. So this is all very validating for us as well. Very exciting work. Uh, Elizabeth, of, the, of those three that you just mentioned, is there, when you work with parents and with educators, is, those one, is there one of those three that, that you've observed to be a little bit more of a challenge in terms of putting into practice? And does that answer differ for parents versus educators? I feel like it's a very even-handed system. If anybody learns it and looks at themselves, they will find that they're naturally good at one of these stands and that they have more struggle with another. And often in couples, in, in parents, one will be better at one of the stands and the other parent will be better at a different one. And their weaknesses will be opposite. Um, I think that you can pretty much have trouble with any of them. And once you get fairly good at all of them, the beauty of Nurtured Heart is you can continue to get better and better at each. And as you improve, 
even the one that you thought you were good at, you'll discover you could get even better at. Got it. So no, I don't think there's a blanket thing that's hard for humans. Um, we have a hard time celebrating the positive because our brains go to negative so easily. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And we as humans have a hard time regulating ourselves when things are going wrong. And we're so tempted to lecture or yell. And we have a hard time exerting the effort to be consistent and steady and clear because as soon as things go well, we might really need to go check our email or see what's burning and and let the limit go. Um, so I think they're all challenging. Well, I, lo- I love the way you frame that up, just in indicating the fact that, like, you know, being very realistic about the fact that that we're not wired to all be great at those things right off the bat, that we're going to come in with natural yeah. strengths and natural opportunities for improvement. So I think that's uh, great, great for all of us to keep in mind. I think from a humility standpoint, we go in and try to develop some of these some of these skills. So when I became a Nurture Heart Approach trainer, it took me a couple of years before I realized that it really is an act of mindfulness. So then, um, you know, because you have to be mindful to be able to notice the things that are going well. Um, and so then that takes me to you, Kat. Earlier in this conversation, um, you know, Elizabeth said, you know, I knew that how to do Nurture Heart Approach, but that you really gave the the why. Why does it work? So I'm curious if this has a lot to do with your um, great work with the famous Dr. Dan Siegel at the mm-hmm. Mindfulness. Institute, does you know what happened there that helps us explain why the nurture heart approach method is so effective? Well, um, we've sort of seen that it you know the nurtured heart fits really well from all these different perspectives. It's consistent with attachment security. You know, you're paying attention, you're present, and it's consistent <clears throat> with regulating emotions, being able to learn about how to manage feelings. And, and, and behaviors. And so um, mindfulness is what a parent or an adult or a teacher brings to the process. You know, um, uh, Elizabeth can talk about a, a term she came up with called a teachable moment. Um, and, but what we do as a, as a caregiver for a child is we prepare ourselves for problems. So we don't just assume everything's gonna be fine but we're prepared for problems when they come up. So emotionally, we know that we have to be on our game as much as possible, taking care of our own business emotionally, so that when a child is dysregulated, they can rely on us to help them bring back and come back to a grounded place. Um, As adults, ideally, we have the capacity for emotion regulation. We have the capacity to calm ourselves when we're anxious. We have the capacity to work through when we're grieving or sad, when we're angry, how to temper that. But if you're a child, there are limitations to what they can do without adult assistance, just because those systems that they use are not fully developed yet. So the part of our brain that does that kind of regulation where think about our own feelings, think about someone else's feelings, try to not throw something, how to temper not to hit someone, that takes a prefrontal cortex, the front part of our brain, that really is the last part of our brain to develop. And when do you think that develops fully? Do you know? Yeah, it's about 25. Yeah, yeah. For a woman, I think it's a little older for a man, closer to 30 for a man. Yeah. Still, 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 still still developing. And and that's like 80% of the way there. Well, but that's under ideal conditions too. That's under like, there was not a whole lot of toxic stress, you know, causing any arrested development in those areas, which is why you see some adults much later in life still, you know, developing prefrontal cortex. Well, and trauma, you know, and trauma experiences. So, so, you know, that, um, 
we can't expect children always to be able to regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. They just, they are going to need adults sometimes to come in and help with that. Well, uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because you said earlier that adults have the capacity, but I don't think that a lot of adults have the where with where or how to do that, which is why mm-hmm. I'm going to say it again. Why I'm the reset lady, which is, you know, yeah. um, I have found that we sort of have a social contract with society, this unspoken social contract that you better know how to reset yourself or to emotionally regulate. And if you don't, there could be disastrous consequences. Only I'm not going to show you. You're going to have to figure that out on your own somewhere in your life's journey. And so um, now you have all of these teachers and parents who don't know how to regulate and are dysregulating kids through their dysregulation and they're just mm-hmm. battling it out in classes um, and neither one's to back down. Now you're both in your stress responses. So I just feel like it's so important to embed these opportunities for emotional regulation throughout a school day or in the home, for instance. I'm curious to about your thoughts about how parents can do that, how they can embed uh, more emotional regulation throughout their their home life. Um, but in doing mm-hmm. so, then now it's a skill set that you can easily rely on that you it's muscle memory, it's a transferable skill um, that right. when you are tasked, you can pull on that, right. So what, what can yeah, parents so- do? In schools, we're trying to make this part of their school day every hour you're resetting. What can parents mm-hmm. do at home to foster that sense of regulation for themselves and then modeling that for their kids? Well, a few things that Elizabeth and I talk about is parents just, I mean, for starters, to know that they it's important for them to have time for themselves, mm. important to have times where they can breathe, where they can relax, where they can reflect on their own lives and their role as a caregiver, whether you're a teacher or you're a caregiver or you're a parent, um, to allow yourself and insist for yourself that you give yourself that time because it will help you do your job better as a caregiver. And so that could be simple as going for a walk, um, taking some deep breaths, doing some kind of meditative process. If you um, find that helpful, whether it's yoga or meditation or um, breathing exercises, and there's a lot of small things people can start with just, you know, how parents can be very busy And so maybe not prioritize that self-care that really is an important tool in their toolkit. (laughs) That's why bedtime was so important to me that it was eight o'clock every night because then it was my time. That was my, I mean, I was the kind of parent who was on the floor. I was playing. I was giving all of that nurturing and support and encouragement. But by eight o'clock, I'm tapped out. I'm done. My cup is empty and I needed to refill my cup after eight o'clock, which meant my kid had to be in bed. And I see a lot of, um, in my own parenting practice. I see uh, a lot of parents who, you know, are the kids are going to bed at 11 or it's, it's, there's not, it's inconsistent. And then they're not getting that time and are very dysregulated as to your point. So Kat and Elizabeth, yeah. have you seen any trends with attachment disorders throughout COVID? And I, I guess I could look mm. at this in one of two ways. Like number one, has it increased attachment disorders? I, I also wonder sometimes like, because, you know, uh, because, kids were, were kind of in close proximity with their families and maybe in some cases develop stronger attachments, does that have an implication with maybe making it harder to like leave the nest and cleave and, and kind of like uh, kind of make the break as they as they get older and reach all those developmental milestones? So I, you could probably make the argument kind of either way, but what does the research tell us and what are you, what are you observing? So l- let me make one point here is that being in proximity to the caregiver doesn't necessarily create a good attachment. Oh, great point. Mm. It's, it's the quality of the interface. So yeah. if the quality of the interface was high because some parents were home more and available more and loving it, then we could predict that that would be good for those families. 
But if you're home more, but hating it and you're stressed and you're unemployed and you and your children are bickering and they're not leaving for school and you can't get a break to do the things Kat was just saying, help us to reset, then even though there was proximity, those families would probably be in worse shape, right? And so I, I would say it's probably early to know what the outcomes are going to be. I haven't read anything if you can't. I, like, I think what what you just said, Duncan, is sort of what I'm hearing is it can go either way, depending yeah. on how the family dealt with the the situation. So we, Some parents got closer and probably had more time with children. Mm-hmm. Others right. were more stressed and it, you know, didn't know how to manage that. So there's more tension. Got it. That's a great point, though. It's not just the I mean, Elizabeth, your point about proximity does not equal quality. Right. And it's kind of That's quality, true. not quantity, I think, is uh uh, a, a great insight. Thanks for sharing that. So I'm curious, what what are your thoughts on, you know, I think that a lot of kids who are not getting the seven attachment needs met at home are looking to have those needs met at school. So what can educators do? Um, I have my own thoughts on this, but I want to know what, what, are, what can educators do to kind of fill the gap there um, so that we can get the kids to a space where they're ready to learn despite this uh, deficit at home? Well, I think that um, re- we think relationship-based again. So mm-hmm. building that relationship with that child and being available, because one of the things the research does find is that one person can really make a difference. And um, in terms of being um, a secure base, a solid, predictable adult in their life, and someone who shows that they value them. And if they're not getting that at home, they certainly can get that from other important, consistent adults in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that can shape the trajectory of their own development and their sense of themselves as valuable, as worthy. Sure. I think teachers are probably under pressure to make up time with curriculum, mm-hmm. um, to make up for uh, learning losses that might have occurred during the pandemic. Um, or w- to deal with children who might be more rambunctious because they've been kind of out of step with the school for a while. And I think that that can put pe- put teachers in a position where they feel that they really need to be pushing and driving on the educational aspect. And I would just go back and say, repeat what you said, Lane, in the first five minutes of this conversation, is it, relationship has got to trump that because learning will go better and learning will go faster and classroom management will go better and you'll lose a whole lot less time mm-hmm. on dealing with behaviors or children who are not in the position for learning if you just front load the relationship. Right. I say just front load is right. cool that easy. <laughs> but well, can front be... loading the relationship yeah. actually saves you time in the long run. Yeah. yeah, you have to prioritize it because um I you know I am constantly referencing the Maslow's hierarchy of school needs in this case. And um, there's no way around it. There's You can only go through. They, those needs all have to be addressed in that order before a child is available for learning. So whether that's happening at home or at school, that's still what, you know, our brain is hardwired to um, to decide that that's our, 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 it prioritizes our needs that way, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I just don't think there's any getting around that. And so that's why I propose that those policy changes need to happen, that we need to prioritize relationship and then all the other things will come. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I say if you do a reset at the beginning of class, it might take up five minutes of instructional time, but you're going to get back the full other, you know, 55 minutes versus mm -hmm. dealing with behavior problems throughout the whole lesson and feeling like this, yeah. I, we didn't do anything today. It was a waste of an hour uh, and we're all exhausted and dysregulated right, at the end right, of that right. hour. Um, yeah, the, the research on, on school and mindfulness is the mm -hmm. same, you know, spending time to have kids connect with themselves in a positive, peaceful way can change the feelings for the teachers and the students and the learning experience. And it's amazing how much more we're seeing of incorporation of those strategies into the school day now versus even 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. I think it's really been, been a, a conversation before. Dramatic like, change. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. So, so uh, Kat and Elizabeth, is there any message that you'd like to share or a specific strategy that you could share if you're going to leave just kind of one concrete, you know, tip or suggestion for, uh, our parent listeners, and then for our educationer, ed educator listeners, any anything for those two audiences that you'd like to you'd like to share or impart to them. I will add something, and then I'll let Elizabeth add something. I I was just thinking um, about um, why it's so important for adults to regulate first. Obviously, it's important for adults to regulate themselves, and what we mean is calm themselves around themselves when they're interacting with the child who's all over the place or upset or whatever. Um, because one, of course, then the child's going to feel more safe. That's obvious. But not only that, but they'll learn from the adult. And it's learning. See, I can see that you're set calm and I can see that you're regulated and it's helping me regulate. So they're learning by watching. They're learning by being told about it. And they're learning it um, at multiple levels at once implicitly and explicitly they're experiencing someone else being calm and that helps them so where can our parents start if you're if you're a listener and you're just hearing this this is new information for you and you're hearing the importance of regulation like where, where can i begin this work at home um you know i obviously now you, let's say that this created some self-awareness and now there's the awareness i need to make a change or that these things are really critical mm -hmm. but what can i do as a parent to get this rolling you know what advice do you have to parents to once they've acknowledged this, I need to now make the change. So I think it's very helpful to look at regulating yourself as a teacher or regulating yourself as a coach or regulating yourself as a, as a parent, anyone who interfaces with children. So look at it as having two parts. And the first part is what Kat already spoke about, which is, did I get a shower today? Mm. Have I had any food today? Have I talked to a friend this month? Like, how do we take care of ourselves, get some exercise, um, get some of our needs met? And those are the ones that prepare you for what's going to happen later. You're not taking a shower because the child is screaming and kicking his brother. You're taking a shower now so that when that happens, you already have some resources. Then the second part is, what do you do in the heat of the moment? Your child just pushed his brother down the stairs. Now is when the rubber hits the road and when mm. things are really intense. And in those moments, if you've done your forework, you now have more resources for dealing with them. And in the moment, reminding yourself that you have got to prioritize your regulation. So stop, take a breath. Remember that regulating yourself is the most important thing because otherwise you're squirting lighter fluid on the flame of your blowing up child, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so looking at both parts, what am I doing day to day to day to build up resources so I have a chance of doing this? And then what do I do in the heat of the moment? It's almost like a resiliency. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, please, Kat. 
it can even go back to sort of the old fashioned, take some deep breaths, right? Right. Take, Count to take 10. Five deep breaths. <laughs> I, I encourage parents to build a mantra, to create mm-hmm. a mantra. What are you going to do in those hot moments, right? I'll tell you my mantra. My mantra is I'm going to go ahead and do what works instead of what I feel like doing. Mm-hmm. And that's how I reset myself when I feel tempted to scold or raise my voice or snatch somebody. <laughs> I just remind myself I'm going to do what works. Some people remind themselves I'm going to play the long game, not try and win this short game of right now making it stop. Um, so what do you do to remind yourself to slow down? Unless your child is about to get hit by a car, you have a second to take a breath. Yeah. I used to ask my kid, I was like, like, you're not in trouble, but I need you to go to your room right now. And I didn't realize that was me resetting. I just mm-hmm. was like, I, I knew that I didn't want to say something based off of a temporary motion that would last in his heart for a lifetime. Yeah, right. And so that's I was right. like, if you could just go to your room and give me a second, and then I would usually call myself. But I didn't know that's what I was doing. This is now much more ordered now that we have these discussions. That's why I'm so grateful that you're on our podcast and sharing this information so that this is just more common knowledge that people have can make better choices. And and like you're saying, Lane, if the child's old enough, you know, and understands it, you can say, Hey, I'm really exhausted. It's Mm -hmm. been a long day. I need to talk about this later. Go take your breaths, go rejuvenate, take a nap, whatever you need. I do have one random question. This is a little random. You said in the earlier parts, and when we were talking about the seven essential attachment needs um, and just creating that safe attachment or secure attachments, I was thinking about, and you know, meeting the child's need is what happens as how they start to establish that. So I was definitely a Ferber method mom for our audience men, uh, member, our uh, listening audience that doesn't know what the Ferber method is. Dr. Ferber said when your child is about six months, they no longer have to have a bottle throughout the night. So you can actually let them cry it out. Um, they had two ways to do it, or you could like check back in periodically to assure the child they're safe. And then there was the just cry it out all night long. It's, you know, you have to learn to self soothe, meaning, you know, we all wake up throughout the night, we flip the pillow over, you you put some covers over yourself and you kind of work it back out and go back to sleep. You learn how to put yourself to sleep. Whereas babies have been taught to be rocked to sleep or nursed to sleep or breast or, or bottle fed or padded on their back or whatever. So they have to learn how to put themselves to sleep. Uh, it worked and thank God I wasn't sleeping for six months prior to that. Um, but does that create more harm in terms of the attachment style? Will the child feel like they're not having their needs met or having that soothing if you're using those type of methods, what are your thoughts? Because those first thousand days are those the first, is it, do I have that right? Is that a right statistic? That's like the first thousand days of life really determine those attachments or. Yeah, it's roughly the first three years is when the attachment system happens, which is why my response to Duncan's question is, um, is attachment stuff worse? I don't know. It's too early to say, Mm. right? You have to look at those kids later and see where they are. Mm. Um, What I would say is um, children are resilient. And children don't have to get everything that they want, even when they're little. Mm -hmm. But the difference between want and need is where we're parsing this. I think children need to not be left alone with their misery. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they need you to continue to give them a bottle every two hours. That's (laughs) a want. That's not a physiological need. Mm -hmm. So threading the needle is, okay, this baby's going to be mad and upset that he doesn't have his bottle. But I can go in and check on him. I can pat him. Right. Mm -hmm. But. The, 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 what's truly a need is to not be abandoned as an infant. Mm-hmm. Like being abandoned as an infant is innately panicking because evolutionarily babies know they do not survive without a grown up. 
Well, Dr. Dan Siegel, right? It was, do I have it right? Was he, I remember seeing videos in my parenting classes with the baby in the high chair. And I think it was Dr. Dan Siegel, am I right? Who would show the baby's Chronic. reaction. It's when Edtronic. The, 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 yes, yes. Edtronic, well, you can yeah. explain more of the, um, you can explain more of the, the study, but that was you know, one mm-hmm. of my first uh, times getting to know Dr. Dan Siegel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That video with Edtronic, it's quite shocking. They have a mother disengaged just temporarily and just seeing the child react so strongly. An um, infant. Yeah. Yeah. An yeah. Infant. But I wouldn't want someone to go away being afraid that they used some of the crying out that they're causing permanent damage because no. <laughs> we're not just talking about the sleep behavior. Right, right. We're talking right. about the whole package of how you interact with the child across days and weeks and in years and and did people do all kinds of different sleep patterns and i think elizabeth would agree with this it's kind of about the parent-child fit as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know what fits for the parent often guides the child but you know your child has different temperaments so um some children are more resilient and some people are more so children are more needy or maybe there's other issues going on and we would be extinct as a species if we required perfect parents Mm-hmm. We would be extinct. A comforting do, thought for all of our parents listening parents to this podcast. Do the best today, they so. can. We've been doing the best yeah. we can for millennia, yeah. and the best we can varies era to era, family to family, culture to culture. Children are mostly resilient, and so you can have a terrible day on Tuesday, and you can mend and repair your relationship and continue on doing better. And yes, that may be the cause of an attachment bruise in your child. We all have attachment bruises. It's just we want to not enter those no-go zones of neglect and abuse, right? But being attuned, it would drive me crazy if someone were attuned to me 24-7. That's intrusive. It would be stifling, right? You just need to be able to attune and have experiences of attunement. Okay, well, Elizabeth, this has been great. A final question we like to ask of, of everyone who joins on the MyBe podcast is what's in your, you know, respective personal mental health toolkits? How do how do you guys, uh, you know, whether yoga, breathing, meditation, what, what's in what's in your toolkits? Oh, I, I do. I do uh, meditation and yoga. I'm also a trainer at the Yoga Therapy Institute. So that's a p- big part of my life. Oh, great. Excellent. Excellent. Is it like a, like, like hot yoga, like vinyasa or, or kind of what, what type of yoga? <laughs> no, more, mo- no more therapeutic in the sense of it's more about um, soothing, calming, knowing your body and mental states and, and working on that through breath and uh, some gentle movement. It's not the exercise version, although that has its place as well. Got it. <laughs> it sounds more restorative. Got it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth, how about you? So I, I walk two miles every day. Okay. Without exercise, I cannot regulate. Got it. I do about 10 minutes of meditation every day. And my post-pandemic protocol for self-care includes making sure I don't fail to talk to friends. Mm. I got so used to solitude that I'm making a really conscious effort to reconnect socially. And um, that's yielding some good gains. So I think what we need maybe changes over time. It's not always the same. And there are phases where you need one thing and another. And right now I'm in a heavy phase of needing to talk to my people. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, it's great. I take you a full circle with these ideas of kind of connectivity and relationships and and attachment. So that makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, I just want to say thank you again. I just want to give a shout out to your book, Relationship-Based Treatment of Children and Their Parents, An Integrative Guide to Neurobiology, Attachment, 
uh, regulation and discipline. Thank you so much for being here with us. And um, I'm really uh, excited about your new book and, um, and the Thank the, you. It's the been impact. a pleasure. Yeah, the impact Thank you, Kat and Elizabeth. Incredibly informative. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Excellent. You got it. You got it. Where where, where else can you talk snack foods and, you know, kind of the <laughs> bagel chips versus Melba Toast and, 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 and whatnot. We, 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 aim, we aim to please, right? So, yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right, Lane. What a great, uh, great, great conversation with, uh, with Kat so and Elizabeth. Encourage everyone to check out their book. Uh, what inspired you this week? What inspired me? So we've been doing report card meetings with a lot of our districts, which is really just an opportunity, like the midway point of the year to to um, share the progress that are. So we have champions um, in a lot of our school districts, which is where our coaches go in and train those champions because they are champions of our cause. Right. To help emotionally regulate classrooms, make more trauma attuned learning communities. <coughs> and so we'd like to see what the gains are and the progress. And so we uh, take that moment to kind of share report and data that our coaches have collected. Um, and I've, I've never seen them go backwards. I've only ever seen progress. I think it really just speaks to the power of coaching. You know, you can hear these great speeches or great workshops, but if you don't have someone to help you implement those changes and um, tell you when you're doing an amazing job at it or, or redirect you or correct it and make those associations in real time um, really makes a difference. So anyway, going through our report card meetings, it was so amazing um, just looking at the data and how everyone is improving and hearing the response um, anecdotally from the districts, how much they feel there there's a difference and how much the teachers or educators um, are responding to what we're doing. And so I'm very proud also of my coaches. My coaches are phenomenal. Um, they're just, we have such a great staff here. I'm just... So it's just very inspiring as I go to these meetings and continue to hear over and over again how well our programs are doing and That's the awesome. impact. That, yeah, well, the you far and the reaching. We're doing an incredible job, Lane, Thank and, you. and incredibly uh, impactful. So, Thank yeah. So, so for me, it's a it's a personal one. My my daughter earned her uh, gold her Girl Scout Girl Scout Gold Award uh, mm-hmm. this week, which is kind of like the Girl Scout equivalent of being an an Eagle Scout. But what she what she did, I think, is kind of relevant to a lot of what we talk about. She created a kindness curriculum, kind of mm-hmm. for. Um, young people that she's kind of, you know, tested and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, done with some young people kind of in the uh, church that, that she that she attends. And so inspiring in a, on a couple dimensions, I think, A, as a parent, it's like one of those great examples of kind of like development of executive functioning that you always mm-hmm. kind of like to see. She was mm-hmm. very, very big on wanting to do this kind of herself with very little, mm-hmm. you know, oversight or involvement from kind of like mom, dad, et cetera. Yeah. And she did a great job and, and kind of kind of got it done. Um, the, the the other piece here, I think, is, and you and I were talking about this before, it's kind of like cool to see that like Girl Scouts still going strong, right? We don't, I feel like we don't hear as much about, you know, Scouts as, as much, but good opera, you know, just a, a good opportunity for young people to kind of demonstrate uh, leadership. And I, I feel like uh, in some ways, you know, I, at least for for me, I think about Girl Scouts, it's almost like an, an anachronism. It's something mm-hmm. of like a bygone era. And to right. see it kind of still, you know, occurring and positively impacting the lives of, of young people, uh, I think is uh, is pretty cool for sure. Yeah, for sure. That, congratulations to your daughter. That sounds like a really cool project and um, and a, a nice accomplishment. And, um, you know, really set her up for some volunteer work in her adult life. So I think that's fantastic. Uh, I was also a Girl Scout. I, I highly recommend it. I have some amazing memories of that and talk about, you know, the parenting piece. My mom was was a cookie mom. She was a my Girl Scout leader at different times. I loved having that um, connection with my mom around that topic too. So 
I, I think that's really cool for your daughter. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Was she a dosido mom going back to our she Girl Scout? Girl Scout cookie. My mom loved thin mints. That was her thing. She loved thin mints. I think my dad and I were dosido and uh, Samoas for sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How about you? What's your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Absolutely. The I, again, I, I am going back to our previous conversation. Like, I'm not sure what they're called anymore. But the, what, what, <laughs> old you know, school name. The, the old cookie school. formerly known as the Samoa, right? Uh-huh, the, yes. the coconut and the caramel, the little chocolate and the, drizzle. And the chocolate yep. and, Whatnot. I think it might have a different name now, but uh, probably no, no, no. Maybe Samoa is the new name. It used to be a caramel delight. Right? Uh, and I think it's the reverse. I think it's now it's the caramel delight. Okay. Is, right. Are they calling it Samoa now? Oh, I, see, I, we I need know, a list. I I, you're I right. Need, Where's I, this legend? I need some Girl Scout cookies in front of me right <laughs> Let's now. Round up some this, Girl Scouts. Uh, is yeah. it almost that time of year? It is. Be it there? is that time. My my daughter actually had her uh, had her. Uh, she's kicked off yesterday. Actually, mm-hmm. she has her big like order form and. And whatnot. It's my younger daughter. So. Now, that is something they should do. See, everyone's coming off their New Year's, um, you know, resolutions to get in the gym. And then you see these, you come out the gym and there are these girls out front of the market. And they're like, please, please yeah, buy girl, a cookie. Girl. And you're like, come on, I've got goals for this summer body. So they need to really sell those in the, like, uh, in the fall. Girl, you, know I mean? Girl Scout you can gorge yourself season. at Thanksgiving and all that and yeah, then get the in shape. Girl Scout cookie season is the place where your New Year's resolution goes to die. <laughs> it goes right? to die. So, yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. But, that, you know, other than that, more power to them. I think there that's great. Excellent. I just feel bad telling them no when I've got weight loss goals in the spring. <laughs> We've got some unbelievable guests coming up at mm-hmm. future podcasts. Really, really uh, excited. Uh, we've had, I mean, just a, a run of incredible Incredible guests, including yeah. kind of Kat and Elizabeth joining us today. Yeah. Uh, really, really excited also about uh, uh, the folks that we have coming up in the in the coming weeks. So for sure. Talk about inspiration. To, yeah. We, yeah. Our guests yeah, have yeah. been extremely inspiring. For yeah. Sure. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining. And uh, we hope to see you back here, hear you back here, interact with you on a uh, next upcoming episode of My Beat. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider.